Radio. This is Catholics Read on cradio.org.au. episode of Catholics Read. I'm Luke. And I'm Kiara. And I'm Victoria. And today we are talking about C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. Yes, we finished it. Yes, we got it done in time. So we're ready to, we're ready to roll with this book. Um, mostly. It's mo- mostly. <laughs> um, so it's a book, as I mentioned, by C.S. Lewis. Um, a little book. It's very, it's quite small. It's only on my copy 100 and... 45, 46 pages. That's exactly my copy too. Uh, We've all got the signature series. That's the thing. Except they all have different covers, which makes life confusing. Um, (laughs) But a desk very colourful. Well, did everyone... Okay, I'll leave this one. Actually, it's not really that relevant. There was like a couple of like one or two pages where it kept spelling of wrong. I don't know if you were in that Look, my my copy had a whole bunch of typos. Yeah, this one had a couple Mine of typos. Mine had really no annoying. typos that I noticed. So All right, this is Kiara the has the superior version. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Mine also has nice li- line cut drawings. That's cool. It's also got like... A bus uh, on it. It's also got like really nice Textured. Like mine, mine's got no right texture. Yours is just boring. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, Victoria. Well, all right. Now that we're done compared, now we're compared to our copies. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure it was riveting for you listeners. Um, so first of all, you just have to imagine the covers. Yes. Okay. Um, first of all, I think we have some uh, th- matters to clear up. Yeah. What? What is it? What? What are we? Just, we are dumptions. Yes. Decided? Yes. No, Can think of a the word. Mea culpas, the maximum mea culpas of the show the, that we the... will start this. Yeah, so, um, even though they were made out, they were genuinely made out of ignorance, but nonetheless. So we so we, we <clears> dedicated <throat> a good like one to two minutes, perhaps perhaps it wasn't that long, uh, in the last episode about us being idiots, joking about how we were probably pronouncing "woad house" wrong. Um, <laughs> it's like, uh, it turns out it was wrong. <laughs> the A is silent. It's pronounced "woodhouse." Woodhouse. Woodhouse. Because um, you English, know, go home, you are drunk. Yes, we essentially. Would like to, we would like to think, uh, thank rather Jordan for continually putting up with our garbage presentation <laughs> of things, and he very friend like kindly lets and us puts know. us out of our misery. Like, <laughs> it's with, with it, within like the context of a really nice email, and then he'll put in there like that. that, that oh, by the way, and, <laughs> um, everything wrong. <laughs> so, so once again, my ability to pronounce anything. And not just you, Luke. Not just you, Luke. Everybody. Yeah. Everybody. He's under under threat. So you would think that C.S. Lewis is a really easy thing to pronounce, but I just don't know anymore. (laughs) What if if Lewis... Turns out he was born in Ireland, so how do we know this is even phonetically spelled? What if Lewis is like Polish or Eastern European, and the W is actually a V, and and it's (laughs) Levis. Levis. I don't know. I don't know. And you know what? I can't even joke about this. Because, like, last time I joked about it, I was wrong. So, all yeah. right. Just for, the re- just for the record, in no other word in the English language is W-O-A-D, pronounced is wood. Or is it W-O-D-E? I can't remember. How do you W-O-D-E. W-O-D-E. Oh, potentially. Wordhouse? W-O-D-E. Whoops. Oh, now I can't even spell, man. Like, this is bad. Yeah, it's W-O-D-E. Yeah, W-O-D-E is Woodhouse. not... Woodhouse. 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 Is not pronounced. Which is funny because it means the E doesn't carry out its traditional function. It just, just doesn't just, do anything. It's a silent E in the middle of a word. It just doesn't it's a do silent anything. E and then it transplants itself as an O 
earlier in, in the word. It's a no, very, it's, it's a magical e. It's a magical e. This is why do you think people <laughs> hate? Le- why do you think people hate learning English? This is why. Okay, we should get to the book. Yes, seven goes back. into twenty-eight four times. It's a magical seven. <laughs> okay, so we better get into what the Great Divorce is actually about. Um, I don't know who wants to who wants to take take this, Victoria. Um, Kiara. Kiara. I was yeah. just. I was he was saying, looking at me and saying Victoria was interesting. And saying, yeah. But no one, no one knows that on the other side. Oh well, the now internet. they do. Now they do. I um, just spoiler. It out. I um, okay. <laughs> um, so this, I think, the only way to describe this book in terms of, to give you an idea of what it's like to read is it's somewhere between the man who was Thursday and Dante's Divine Comedy. It's. Um, basically starts off, you know, you get thrown into this dreary, dreary, grey, dystopic world and you meet a bunch of characters who are waiting for this bus. And this bus takes them to this, you know, alternate re- alternate reality and um, it in a really, really weird way that I can't really describe. You just have to read it. You just have to read this book. It's one of these books that you just kind of have to read to get a real sense of you suspend disbelief and you get taken into the story and then after a while you, you think this is, you know, this is, you get very sucked into the story and you don't need to suspend disbelief anymore and you just roll along and meet the characters and contemplate this and very large allegory that's yes. being written. So, spoiler alert, um, spoiler alert, the um, the grey place that they were in was, was purgatory or hell and then they go up to this place, you know, this place where reality is so real that the people on the bus can't handle it. They're shadows of themselves, like literally they're ghostly shadows of themselves. And so when they're confronted with like the perfection of creation in a way, like this absolute perfect reality, it's painful. Like to walk on the grass is painful to, you know, breathing the air for them is almost painful. Like just everything is, um, everything is so real and so vibrant. They just, they, they just can't handle it. And so there are also other pe- other people who live, who live in this area, who live in this world too and they are you know they are the saints they are fully in flesh and they can they you know live and breathe this um absolutely amazing reality they are more real than any of us ever could be in a way it's really weird and they constantly say that they are in love and as you know a 20 year old who's read her fair share of austin and things like that every time i would read that sentence i would think oh it's like a re- relationship Romance. sort of thing but they were actually saying they they were in love itself as in, they were living within within God. Yeah. And whenever these people are described, they're always described as having mirth in their eyes or dancing. Yeah. Dancing happiness behind. But they're their not looks. angels. But they're not angels. But they're no. not angels, which C.S. Lewis makes very clear. And so basically, you follow this one particular human ghost who gets taken around by George MacDonald and shown around who, the place. For any keen listeners who've been listening to this for a while, is the author of. The Princess and the Goblin. Yes, who's and and such a great cameo. Yes, and um, C.S. Lewis is a big fan of George MacDonald, as you can tell, because that's why he made him the his his version of Virgil in his um in his in his book about. And what a Virgil he is! He talks in this Scottish brogue, which you can just imagine, and he's described as having this beard and being quite quite hulking. And you can just like he was wearing um, a lumberjack flannel shirt in my in my image. Yes, I'm not sure if they wear those in heaven, but he, he I definitely was in my head. Uh, <laughs> I don't see why not. Um, 
And so basically they follow, they, you know, this man witnesses these other human ghosts grappling with their, grappling with their sinful past. And if, because if they want to go to heaven, they can't have whatever they were clinging to with them. It has to sort of. Their emotional, spiritual baggage. Yeah, essentially. Or, you know, the, the, the mistakes they made in life. Mm. And, you know, and a lot of them don't, a lot of them choose to keep hanging, to keep clinging. Mm. And it's used to go back to hell. Yeah, it's really, it's really sad. Like you know, and infuriating. Yeah, you're just and like, why can't you see? Yeah. Why? And you know, but I mean, how many? And you know, and how many times are the angels screaming that at us every single day? Why can't you see? You No, they don't call you idiots. They just, you know, they and they just and, pray very reverently for you. <laughs> um, and so eventually, and but you do see some victories, which I suppose we'll talk. We'll, Talk think, a bit more. I we'll talk more so about. So much to talk to do about the Great Divorce, despite the so, fact this is a small book. In the next episode, we'll probably look into the individual tales and maybe a look into the origins of the title of the book and maybe some of the academia surrounding it. But at the moment, I think we should just focus on. I think we're just going to focus the grand, on the grand scheme of things. Yeah, yeah specifically on uh, C.S. Lewis's um, presentation of of the afterlife, which. Mind you, he does very, very specifically. He's not trying to make a state. theological statement. Yeah, he's not, not claiming to be a mystic with certain visions or no, no, no. no. He's anything like this that. is a literary exploration of a very of a. It's it's it's, it's sort it's of an like leaf, leaf by niggle. Yeah, it's similar thing. Yeah, and um, so he's just throwing some ideas out there as food for thought, as opposed to making a you know theological treatise on what heaven, what is heaven and hell. Mm. Um, but what I found really, what I find really interesting is the concept, of, the concept of purgatory making it in there, because C.S. Lewis himself was, unlike a lot of other Protestants, believed believed that purgatory exist, mm. existed. And you can almost imagine him and Tolkien having these like tête-à-tête, that's you know, French for head-to-heads, yeah, on, like over some brandy in a bar over things like this. So yeah. I'm not surprised he came around to the idea. Um, well, I mean, to a certain extent. yeah, to yeah. a certain extent. Yeah, it's and I mean, basically, C.S. Lewis's logic. I've read elsewhere that C.S. Lewis's logic for purgatory was, well, our our souls demand purgatory. Mm. It's they, a legitimate well, they, they answer. Purification. Yeah, and you know, it's um, it's one of the you know, it's yes, okay, it's not explicitly in the Bible, but it mm. grew out. Not explicit. No, the word yeah. purgatory is not in the Bible. No, that's, but that's, there but, are but, allusions to it, like in Maccabees and things. Yes, like there that. are allusions. Pray to, for the dead. Yes, there are allusions. There are allusions. Yes, he does. Prayer. He has a do- something about you know, oh, no, souls can enter through. No, I think it's Paul. Uh, tested. Some are tested. The, the, he uses the uh, the metaphor of wood and, and hay. metal and hay. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless. Yeah. Um, so C.S. Lewis, and so you know, he saw he saw the logic. Of you know the mercy of God being extended to those who still want to go who through are not the, perfect. who are not, perf- or, who are or not perfect, perfection. who are not perfect, who are not reach perfection. You still Spoiler get this alert, opportunity. Most of us, yes. Um, is that a sp- really? <laughs> I don't know. Some I, people it might be. <laughs> it might be news to some people. Okay. <laughs> um, and so yeah, I don't know. I just I. That's always really interesting seeing how, mm-hmm. but also the way he sort of conceived of purgatory is purgatory is a place that everybody sort of goes to. And if yeah, he has a kind of interesting idea that purgatory, I mean, there was, it's, it's not, I, I don't, I don't want to try and like read too much into because he, he he's not I mean, a, t- tells us not to, but I don't want to, um, his is kind of like an inverse of the Catholic view 
of, and he he mentions this actually. He mentions this in in the Great Divorce, but it's almost like an inverse of the Catholic view of purgatory, where Catholics are more tend to say that purgatory is if you were to divide up heaven and hell, purgatory would be in heaven. Yeah, it's the the uh, um, heaven's waiting room. Purgatory if you, if you would will. be what uh, the character and the ghosts are going through in order to, to yeah, get with, higher with the in heaven. And the Whereas he kind of says that, okay, that's purgatory, but also the experience of what is ultimately hell is also purgatory. There's this kind of grey space that overlaps, heaven and hell, which if you end up in heaven, like you either go to heaven from there or you remain mm. in hell, um, which... As I say, is kind of an inverse of the Catholic of the Catholic idea. Yeah, it's very blur, very much blurring the lines. If you're in purgatory, you're in heaven. Yeah, you're going to get there. Yeah, it's not going to be easy, but you're going to get there. That's Um, why there is no soul on earth that is more happy than a soul in heaven uh, in in purgatory. purgatory. Yeah. Um, And so again, I don't want to try and read too much into it there, but I mean that's perhaps one of the things there that we could say that, well, well the Catholic idea is a little bit different. I think it's interesting because you can really see him trying to nut it out. Yeah. And I love it when you can see the cogs in someone's mind kind of trying to tick something over. And he was also work. brilliant enough to be able to tell a great story whilst he was oh, doing that. Yes, like, seriously. Can. Yes, he can. I think, I think at the end of the day, I, I, haven't, uh, I haven't studied or read um, uh, Dante's uh, mm. Divine Comedy but would it would it be fair to say that the point of Dante's Divine Comedy was more the specific examples within that than the overarching um, framework that's given? So, so C.S. Lewis isn't necessarily trying to say that heaven is like a mountain that we ascend up or anything like that, but rather he's trying to point out um, the examples of each of the individual people and the fates of their souls. Do you think that's what he's doing, or he's giving equal uh, equal weight to both? I think he's. I think he's giving a fair weight to. I think he's giving a fair okay. weight to both. But I think his emphasis is more on because the characters you meet, you know, you see a little bit of yourself in every one of them. It was an and examination of conscience. Yeah, this is a me. really, it was, really. It was intense. Yeah, so I mean, this is not exactly a light bedtime reading, <clears throat> so you you are warned, but. You know, so I think C.S. Lewis does particularly focus a little bit on the individual stories compared to Dante per se, but that doesn't mean Dante ignores them explicitly either. Like, and you see characters, you know, characters that were well known to Dante and his audience. So villains from history, from yeah, from absolutely. Florentine history, appear in Dante's Inferno, and you you know you meet you know in, you know you meet a bunch of. Um, whereas these are ordinary, that's one of the things about Dante's Inferno is that you see a lot of people that would have been well known. They were infamous or famous or famous people. Whereas here, they're just ordinary folk. Yeah, that's they're, true. They're ordinary true. working yeah. class. They're but ordinary working their class. Are still across both Dante and uh, and C.S. Lewis, their sins are held up as an example um, and and a point and the punishment that they receive. Well, the punishment um, that they. They inflict on themselves, really. Like in, it's in one the of those. Divorce, that's definitely that's definitely the case. I mean, of course, there is an element of that in uh, in the Inferno, but um, but we'll probably return to that next week. I yes, think. a little bit. Yeah. Yes, um, and I think that's I uh, that's one of the things I really do appreciate about this book is that you you mean you literally could use this as an examination of conscience because and what I do love is the way that he. That even you know ordinary working class people who would have had a pretty tough life, 
Mm. They would have had it, you know, like there's no doubt. Lived through the war. Yeah, they lived through, you know, they've, they've just lived through World War Two. You know, there were lots of bad things happening in the world. There were, you know, there was a real, really hard times. And they're the last people on, on, on a, you know, they're the sort of people you think would, you know, deserve, you know, deserve to be cut some slack. Mm. But at the end of the day, they're doing it to themselves, which that is was, one of the fascinating. No one gets away with it here. Like he goes from because it's because it's 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 problems with with um I guess the the sinful character the things that we build up in ourselves that whether you're the Queen of England or you know you're a downtrodden person uh, barely keeping keeping your house together okay um I would most certainly um go with our lord's words that the person who's the downtrodden character probably has an easy way of getting into heaven but that's because they don't have a whole bunch of stuff to distract them from it um like maybe the queen of england not making any slights towards queen elizabeth um or anything like that but i'm just using as an example i think that's something that's fantastic about it as well is that he doesn't try and paint broad um socio-demographic brush strokes into who ends up judgments or or make judgments about people's state 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 in life necessarily he's just it's it's literally you're literally watching this happen with this character Mm. and you you know you you want you want to see these you want to see these people you know choose make choose um choose choose something better but they just can't it's really good for perspective i think after you read each little story you really get a sense of the need to look at your life and your each decision you make and every day through the eyes of eternity. How is this helping my eternal soul? It's going one way or the other with every single decision and step I take. And you can really see it towards the end of each story, the mm. fact that some have stepped too far in one direction and have can't, even if they just can't come back. I just it's wanna, really sad. I, know, I know we're not going into individual stories, but I think this this is part of the overarching narrative of what C.S. Lewis is trying to get to, and it's towards the end. He, um, it's talking uh, the the main character um, is trying to come to terms with George MacDonald about um, pity, about the difference mm. between the passion of pity and the action of pity. And this was fantastic because I think this really is a key here to um, understanding to the story, understanding the story, and understanding why. Like we're sitting here going, "No, this character, like you know, there's hope for them. There's hope for them," and it can it can lead us. And I think today we do have a tendency towards this, lean us towards a universalism because we're horrified at the idea that there's not. Mm-hmm. When I say universalism, I mean um, that Everybody goes everyone ends up in heaven, no matter what. Um, which, which is funnily a, enough, George MacDonald kind of was. Had, and a communist. Uh, yeah. um, he was a universalist. Yes. Um, but he says here, um, I'm not going to attempt to do this in a Scottish accent, but George MacDonald tries to explain this to, um, to um, the main character. The main Let's character who, X, can I just I stipulate know. here, but it's very important. Um, you can't necessarily attribute the main character to C.S. Lewis because... Even though I keep doing it, it. Even though Luke keeps doing it, but in terms of narratology and those sort of things, you have the author and you have the narrator. You then have the implied narrator, the implied narratee, and the receiver, the audience. And those, those, all those elements can't 
aren't all the same thing yeah. and can't be transposed. So even if you have um, an, an author writing in I, I do this, I do that, it's not necessarily him or her. Sometimes it is uh, the narrator who, who can be a character in himself, who can embody parts of or elements of the author's opinions, but not always. So just keep that in mind. Continue. Friendly Luke. reminder. <laughs> so about how... Um... Okay, so he says he talks about pity, and I think there's a certain element of sort of, to a certain extent, mercy, although not necessarily. He would have used the word mercy if he meant it, but pity, and this idea that, well, hang on a second, you know, shouldn't, why, it, this was just after there's a section where a person basically is, um, he's, beca- he's become a wallowing in pity, um, and he's speaking to his, his wife, uh, who's, who's a saint, and he basically sends himself to hell because he's constantly trying to, like, taking his bat and ball and going home. Mm. You know, he's trying to get his wife to pity him and she's refusing to because she's in heaven and she just wants him to be in heaven and she knows that his character trait of always trying to suck up for pity is not going to get him into heaven. Mm. And the main character is a little bit horrified by this because he's he's saying, well, is this, this sounds horrible that, that a person... This person wants someone to pity them. Shouldn't they receive that pity? I mean, it seems a bit unfair that that is what sends them to hell. A distinction, and which he makes is this incredible. distinction between um, talking about time and eternity, and also the uh, the passion of pity, so the emotion <clears throat> of pity and the action of pity. And he says, with regards to the the emotion of pity, or regards to both, but he'll go into this. You must distinguish. I'm not going to say ye. You must distinguish. <laughs> The action of pity is to live, will live forever, but the passion of pity will not. The passion of pity, the pity we merely suffer, the ache that draws men to concede what should not be conceded and to flatter when they should speak truth, the pity that has cheated many a woman out of her virginity and many a statesman out of his honesty, that will die. It was used as a weapon by bad men against good ones. Their weapon will be broken. That, that, I think, is a really fantastic idea of, of Cecil's almost trying to justify the existence of hell and trying to say that today we have this very, very strong, and I guess in his time as well, very strong tendency to want to say that, oh, look, you know, everyone's really good on the inside. Everyone, you know, everyone's really good. And, you know, why, why isn't God just merciful to everyone? He is merciful to everyone. But he it's a two-way to street. To everyone. But it is not... It is not logical for God to be merciful if the mercy that a person is crying out for is not true. If it's simply a tactic to try and get their own way. Yeah. Um, it's not someone loving God for his sake. And this is terrifying because this is an examination of conscience for me as well. But almost like um, loving, in this case, it's not loving God, but loving his wife or trying to reach out to his wife just so that she can reaffirm him, sort of build himself up. He's made himself up. He's hung his hat on a hook that cannot bear the weight. He expected, you know, he was looking for, you know, he was looking for that eternal, that, 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 that interior ache and desire that we have to know that we are loved and are truly loved because, you know, it can't be fulfilled by another human being. It can only be fulfilled by God. But it's not even that he wants that. But he doesn't, but, but, he's, but see, that's what he really wants deep down inside, but he's yes, gotten yes. so... Caught, he's 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 gone for the he's gone for the cheap imitation, mm. which is other people's pity. Yeah, yeah, and this was used as a method. And C.S. Lewis is trying to say here, no, even that desire for mercy 
or, or pity rather, I keep using the word mercy inappropriately, um, even that desire for pity, if it is not used in a true sense, in a proper sense, then it's evil and it has to go in yeah. order for you to get into heaven. Yeah. We commit ourselves to the mercy of God, but we have to remember that we shouldn't use this in the same way that the example that George MacDonald uses, oh, sorry, it's his, what the, the dwarfs, he's a, the character's a dwarf. Um, but she uses this example of when he was a child, he would always, to, to try and get the, the, the attention of his sisters, rather than admitting that he did the wrong thing, he would go up into the attic and sort of sit there and sulk, and his sisters would feel sorry for him because they didn't want the poor child being up in the attic all night. Um, right. That kind of, do, do you, did you, do you remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I vaguely remember that now, yeah. And so what he's trying to say is that that is an inappropriate appeal to pity. You're simply an appeal to pity there, not as, a, as an attempt to try and say, I've done the wrong thing, please help me, please forgive me, but as a tactic to try and it's make ma- it It's emotional like manipulation. It's, no, it's, it's, um, it's exactly what it is. It's emotional, it's, emotional mani- it's emotional manipulation to, you know, that which unnecessary emotional manipulation, by the way, because, you know, that's... And this is, this is what, it, like, why I'm bringing this in when we're discussing... It's an insincere martyrdom is what it is. Yeah. That, just thought I'd put it in there. That's a, that's a great that's a great way of putting it. Now that is a really ex- the reason why I use this when we're talking about the sort of grand scheme of things is this is a really extreme I guess example of what C.S. Lewis is trying to get at. That what on the face of it we might be fooled into thinking is a well-intentioned person is actually at the heart of it a strike or a mark of the evil one. Um, of this appeal it's to a the twisting... passion of pity rather than the action of pity which is the Lord's mercy. Yeah. Cause, um, and, and that's the thing too, is that mercy is a different, you know, Mother Teresa never pitied the people she worked for, but she showed them mercy. Because to pity someone, I think, is to, you know, you say, oh, poor thing, that must be so hard. It's It's, it's yeah, actually, it, I think it's best portrayed in The Phantom of the Opera. So right at the end, how Christine feels towards the Phantom is pity is pure pity, and that's it. So that's a good it's example a, I could think of. It's a it's a shallow. You know, pity is a shallow. You're not actually engaging with that person. You're just saying, "Oh, that's really sad." Here's a dollar. You know, and that's all it requires of you. It doesn't require not, any. That's not what's going on. No. In terms of God's mercy, and not at all. That's that's not that's not appropriate for heaven. Um, but. I guess that's where we should leave it. We've sort of looked at uh, C.S. Lewis's conception of heaven and hell in The Great End Purgatory, in The Great Divorce. Um, join us next week because we'll... Keep talking into, about it. We'll keep talking about <laughs> we'll it. We'll talk we'll about the individual stories and that's the, best bit. the nature of the world, I think, still needs to be looked into. Why there are ghosts and why some things are solid. And, and there's unicorns. Unicorns. There's unicorns, legit people. And, and angels and fountains and a whole yeah, bunch of stuff. Yeah, but so so much to be learnt. I mean, what what I talked about there, while it applies to, I think, the whole story, is really just a couple of pages. So there's so much to unpack. So, so if you like, get yourself a copy and get yeah, reading read by... Read it by it's next It's very, time. very quick. I'm the slowest reader in the Southern Hemisphere, and this took me about two days. So Fantastic. let that one sink in. All right, well, we'll see you next time for part two of The Great Divorce. Bye. Bye. That was an episode of Catholics Free from cradio.org.au.